This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Surprise news yesterday about Ohio's death penalty, something we've been talking about lately and we will be talking about today. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer for another Friday. We often have a lot of things to talk about on Friday. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Chris Ranowski, Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston. And Jane Cahoon, we got a note from somebody that was confused by something we talked about yesterday. I'm not sure we said it wrong, but maybe you should clarify it. <laughs> Of course, it was something I said, and apparently <laughs> I was rather imprecise at best, or maybe I was just wrong. But what I was trying to say was that about 87% of the coronavirus deaths in Ohio were to people age 65 and older. I did not mean to say that if you're older, you have an 87% chance of dying or that 87% of the older people who get COVID die. I meant to just say that you know, among the people who die, there's a huge portion who are who are older. OK, we just wanted to make sure people understood that in case if one person says that they were confused by it, that means a lot of other people probably are, too. So there you have it. Let's begin. Could we be on the threshold of abolishing the death penalty in Ohio? Jane Cahoon, this came out of nowhere, but, but I guess not really. I mean, we we've talked a lot about the death penalty in relation to the death of Anthony Soil because he he got away from the death penalty. He died of his own natural causes, yet we spent a lot of money over the years trying to put him away. We're still working on a story of the total cost. So what's this move? Well, this one definitely has a different feel and tone to it because in the past it was always a pretty much a Democratic effort. You know, they might have had one Republican on board or maybe two. But this group of lawmakers is planning to introduce legislation once again to abolish the death penalty in Ohio. But this time they have like a team that includes Republicans. And one of the Republicans, State Senator Naraj Antani from Dayton, said, hey, we've, we've got the votes for this. There are enough Republican votes to supplement the Democratic votes to, to get this done. So as I said, it's, it's actually a team which would really be a first. However, and this is a big however, the, the bill so far is only getting, you know, kind of lukewarm support from the two big leaders who, who lead the Senate and the House, Matt Huffman in the Senate and Bob Cup in the House. They're both death penalty supporters. And, you know, they were they would be the ones who could control whether a measure like this could make it to a vote. But they, they both said that they're open to a, a legislative discussion on this. So that's, I guess, sort of a good sign, but either one of them could unilaterally block it. Anyway, these bills are coming up in the in the near future. They would replace 
all capital sentences with the sentence of life in prison without parole. State Senator Nikki Antonio of Lakewood, she's a Democrat. She's been leading this charge for a while in, in the legislature. But, you know, it's interesting because increasingly conservatives are, are kind of coming on board with the, with the thought that the death penalty doesn't work. You know, sometimes it's religious grounds and sometimes it's, to, as you said, with Sowell, the high cost of putting someone to death. State Representative Gene Schmidt, who's a Republican from Southwest Ohio, actually talked about, you know, changing her mind on this issue after meeting Joe D'Ambrosio. Remember that that name, a death row inmate who was found to be wrongfully convicted. And she said it got me to thinking that, you know, we have to make sure we never kill an innocent person, which is something kind of astounding coming out of a Republican's mouth. Except when you look at this, there is no reason to keep it. It doesn't work. There's all the evidence show it doesn't work. It doesn't get used for what it was designed to be used for. Supreme Court justices have said that in Ohio, that it's it's not used for the cases it was meant for. There is a racial disparity in the way it's giving out. It's irreversible. It costs a ton of money and you can't get the drugs to do it. So when you look at it all, the only reason we still have it is for that silly puritanical streak that cop and company have. Every every logical reason that exists is get rid of it. It's dumb. Anybody want to disagree with me on that? No, <laughs> no, I don't. I, I don't even think Mike Dewine would disagree with you on that because, as we've talked about many times on this podcast, he's he's kind of evolved on, on this issue, and he doesn't even describe himself as a supporter of the death penalty anymore. And he's put executions on hold because we we have these ongoing problems getting the drugs for lethal injection. There's a whole line of thinking, though, that that one of the main reasons that Republicans have come around on this issue is because it it is expensive to to put people to death. So, you know, through the appeals process, a lot of attorneys get paid and this and, and such. But if you keep somebody alive, they stay in prison and they're using the private expensive phone systems. They're having to check out tablets and they're having to. So there are a lot of contractors who do make a lot of money if people are kept alive. And I know that sounds very cynical, but, you know, there's there. Yeah, I mean, there's <laughs> not that many of them to make a big difference on the profit side. That seems like a bit of a stretch, but OK. I, another... well, but, but 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 a lot of the a lot of the jail reforms have sort of moved to I mean, this wouldn't apply in the death penalty side of things. But a lot of the push to empty out jails is because home monitoring is is not only less know, of a liability I mean, for the counties, but it's also I get you know, it. But, but I, I have a hard time seeing that being part of this conversation because there aren't that many people on death row. I mean, no, I know. Not, I just had to be a cynical Okay, let's move on to this week in the CLE. First Energy in the center of a massive corruption investigation in the state house made some big announcements on Thursday, including one that involves the kind of dark money groups that handled $60 million in bribe money from the utility. Let's go through what we learned, Chris. There's, there are a bunch of things on this. It's like this is the story that keeps on giving. This was a lot. There was there were a couple of things that came out of this that were that were kind of a big deal. The first saying that uh, the company said that it had unearthed improperly classified transaction, most of which occurred in Ohio that were billed to customers and date back more than 10 years. A company official said the expenses 
which they disclosed Thursday in their uh, required federal filings with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, were small enough not to have a major impact on the company's finances, but they said the expenses included $4 million the company previously disclosed paying in early 2019 to an entity associated with former state official that Governor McDewine has said is Sam Rondazzo, who DeWine hired back in 2019 to run the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio. Also and is on record of saying is a good guy. Right. A <laughs> good guy as they took the FBI took stuff out of his home or offices. Was it home or offices? I want to make sure we get his home. It was home. home. Okay. No, okay. I went to his home, but he's okay. <laughs> the co- there's no evidence that he's done anything wrong, according to Mike DeWine. Right. And the company, it, I mean, the company fired CEO Chuck Jones and two other top officials shortly after they discovered that payment. And Rendazzo resigned from Puco the day after it was disclosed. Uh, and the same week, the FBI searched his home. Asked during the conference call with investors on Thursday for additional details, Chris Pappas, a board member, who has taken a more active day-to-day role since the emergence of the House Bill 6 probe, uh, said they included lobbying expenses and vendor payments. First Energy is currently being audited by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission over its lobbying, and uh, it, it disclosed that this week, too. So, But the other big thing that, that they, they did as part of an effort to kind of clean up its image, the company said that it is scaling back its political activities. The company has been one of the major political contributors in Ohio. I mean, it's it's difficult to find anybody who hasn't received a little bit of money from from First Energy or one of its its dark money groups. And it has suspended its political spending for now and, and won't be giving money to the so-called 501c4s, the technical name for these dark money groups. So in the near future, it's going to be, they're not going to be sort of trying to quietly influence political campaigns throughout that's, the state. That's huge. For, yeah, for big, energy yeah. to get out of the political donation business, I mean, they've been the economic fuel for the whole state house. I don't know. I'm going to have to find some new sources for those payoffs. The The thing about Rendazzo that, that's fascinating is from the beginning, that $4 million payment was, huh, what? Right before he goes into the PUCO chief's job, first energy that gets regulated by them gives him $4 million as part of his consulting contract. Now, mm-hmm. It's not part of a consulting contract and nobody's saying what it is, but I, I'm not going to let anyone forget Mike DeWine standing by this guy after the FBI raid, after the $4 million payment came out saying he's a good guy and there's no evidence of wrongdoing because before this is over, we are going to find what that $4 million paid for as he stepped into that job. Jane Cahoon, do you think that this has wisened Mike DeWine up that he will appoint a Ron Dazzo replacement that's a good person because up to now he doesn't seem like he wants to. No, I mean there's a there's a push among critics of this whole process, you know, the way they appoint these commissioners to get a consumer advocate on there and they apparently are considering at least one, but I don't know what he's gonna do. Yeah, I I mean he you would think that would be automatic, especially since Mike DeWine and his daughter profited from in their campaigns from some of this dark money. It was it made it its way to them. You would think he'd want arm's length from anything that stinks, but he doesn't. He has not said, yes, I am looking to put somebody in that represents the consumer. I'm going to make sure we never have another Rondazzo kind of situation. You know, yeah, he's he's very, you know, he got asked at a recent briefing, uh, you know, about a member of his staff who established one of these dark money groups before he worked for the governor. And, you know, he just like 
stammered. I don't stammer. Yeah, that's that's what I'm doing. But didn't certainly stuck by that person as well. So it's it's just interesting. I don't know what his stance on this is going to be. Okay. Well, we have another conversation about first energy later in the podcast. Stay tuned. It's this week in the CLE. Who's the bigger Donald Trump loyalist, Jane Timken or Josh Mandel? And why does it matter? Jane Cahoon, I almost said, who's the bigger Donald Trump stooge, but I thought that would be <laughs> inappropriate. But but I was thinking it. And this this is hilarious, what we're going to see. Hilarious and sad and and actually a little bit ominous. So what are we talking about here? Yeah, this is truly the contest of who's the Trumpiest of them all. And, you know, we've already seen Josh Mandel, who who announced first he was the first one to jump into this Senate race, laying claim to being the first statewide official to endorse Trump the, the, the first time around. And of course, I think that was after he had supported Marco Rubio, but then Rubio dropped out. But he uh, Mandel calls himself Trump's number one ally in Ohio. He's been tweeting and appearing on conservative media condemning Trump's impeachment and and even, you know, attacking Jane Timken before she made her announcement Thursday that she was in this race, you know, suggesting she hasn't gone after Anthony Gonzalez, the only Republican in Congress who voted for Trump's impeachment. But it, Mandel is even like the only Ohio <laughs> Republican. The, did I say? Yeah, He's Ohio Republican. Ohio. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. The only Ohio Republican in Congress. It's funny. Mandel's even getting mocked for like affecting this accent on TV that the makes it sound like right. he's, he's from Southern Ohio or, you know, maybe even Texas rather than from, you know, Beachwood or Lyndhurst. But anyway, when Timken made her announcement on Thursday, she immediately launched a six figure cable TV ad buy with a commercial called Freedom and Opportunity. And, and it opens with her touting Trump's win in Ohio and all the great things he's done, saying she's running to defend Trump's agenda, quote, without fear or hesitation. We should note that she was Trump's handpicked choice to lead the Ohio Republican Party. So as you said, it, it's just this contest. And both say they, they want to go to Washington to, to fight the radical socialist agenda of Joe Biden. And, you know, they're even giving fuel to the these lingering conspiracy theories about the election and everything. But <laughs> in my opinion, the funny part of this is Mandel tweeted after Timken announced, he tweeted a photo of her with former Governor John Kasich, you know, smiling photo who's and Kasich, of course, is now hated in the Trump supporting Republican circles. And then it was really funny. Kasich followed up with a tweet of his own with like a rolling eye emoji showing him, Kasich, appearing at a Mandel campaign event from one of Mandel's previous races so it's just it's although case was not a josh mandel fan he made that no no i don't think they care for one another the the uh, the odd thing is this is an all-in kind of bet i'm they're both betting that being tied to trump is the path to victory and that is by no means certain i know a lot of people think trump's going to be out there still manipulating the republican party but i that's not to be seen and so a year from now, 16 months right. from now, this right. may be, you know, we're going to save all this stuff because we right. won't let people forget it. It's a it's a risky thing. I mean, you know, Josh Mandel has shown a soullessness in his campaign. He'll say anything. He makes stuff up. I mean, he was Mr. Pants on Fire in his first run for the Senate. He, he doesn't care about the truth. Nothing. I mean, it's just kind of a shock how soulless he is. Brent Larkin wrote a very strong column about him last week. 
So did George Will. (laughs) Right. I mean, he gets national attention for this. It's just a a, a nonsense. And, you know, there are there are legal moves to open up Josh Mandel's divorce file to find out what he's so intent on hiding. Jane Timken, though, has has also been stalwart in her support of Trump. And I'd just be interesting to see if a Republican comes forward that says, hey, you know, I want to be there and I'm not a Trumpian. I think Trump was a disaster. Let's go the other way. Whether there are people in the party that would would embrace that. Yeah, right now, I don't think that's going to happen because they want to win the primary. But we should keep in mind, as you said, this primary is more than a year away. So a lot could happen between now and then. I mean, I think everybody thinks the election's probably this year because it's gotten off to such a early start. But I know it's going to be interesting. We don't have a Democratic candidate announced yet. Both Tim Ryan and Dr. Amy Acton, the former health director for Ohio, have said they're considering it. We'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Laura Johnston, you call it the eternal tightrope walk of balancing work and child care through the coronavirus pandemic. And you wrote a piece yesterday describing how it's doing some very dramatic harm to women in the workplace. I imagine you got some reaction to this. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So working moms are being pushed out of the workforce. It's, it's happening to women in general, some jobs because women are more prevalent in the service and restaurant industry, and those have been most affected by the pandemic. But in others, moms saw no real choice because someone had to care for their kids. I mean, we're talking about this has been a year that some schools have been remote. Daycares closed for a time or they took far for your children. Grandparents and elderly caregivers worried about contracting COVID. They couldn't watch them. And we were home all the time. In most cases, it was mothers who shouldered this burden. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that the economy lost 140,000 net jobs in December. All of them were women. It was 156,000 jobs that women lost. Men gained 16,000. And if you're looking at the whole year, January to January, female jobs fell about 6.8%. Male jobs fell 5.8%. But that reversed a longtime trend where women were, were adding more jobs than men. So despite all this, women, even if they're working, do about 30% more of the housework and 40% more of the childcare. So when it came to something's got to give, it was the jobs. And I think this is it's something that is a national issue and people are talking about it. But I haven't seen a lot of solutions come up yet. You, you write a lot of pieces and you're a good writer. And when you write about people going through angst, you try to convey it. This piece had an extra edge, though. It was it, it seemed personal that you you owned this topic. And I imagine that the power of that brought out some response from people. What did you hear? We did get some good responses. I haven't gotten a ton. So if you are looking, if you're listening on this podcast and you want to contribute, please email me at ljohnston at cleveland.com. But we did hear from one woman who she works for Cleveland. She's like an EMT and she has a son who has been in virtual school this entire time. She cannot help him with his schooling. She can't even be there. So she has to pay extra for childcare four days a week. It's an extra $600, she said, that's really been tough on her budget. She's a single mom and she's having a really tough time. And and this issue, I think it just has always fallen on the individual families and on the mothers to figure it out, like come up with this patchwork of childcare. And this is not a new issue. This has happened way before the coronavirus. It's just that the added pressure of that kind of crack, this very carefully constructed Lego tower we had built our lives on. And I, I do Lego believe- tower, you're such a mom. <laughs> <laughs> and I have Legos all over my house. But I feel like this should be a community discussion because 
if nobody has kids, you know, what's the future? So this is a pot we should all share. Okay. I hope we hear from more people. It'd be good to get a conversation going on that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Kevin Kelly considering an expansion of or a sequent inquiry into the first energy attack on Cleveland Public Power on a new front where he sees potential harm the utility has done to the city? Chris Ranowski, he's already looking at this nonprofit that is that was working against uh, CPP using dark money from First Energy. But this is a new wrinkle that we, we've talked about in the past because we suspected it, but he suspects it. Right. So now uh, Kelly is considering whether to examine if First Energy sought to interfere with a wind turbine energy project that involves Cleveland Public Power. In an interview he did with us, he said that the inquiry would explore that questionable $4 million payment by First Energy to the future head of PUCO, Sam Randazzo, who we talked about earlier today, and whether it was used to harm the proposed wind turbine project on Lake Erie. Of course, the comments came during a a very illuminating meeting and 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 filing from First Energy this week. So so Sam Randazzo, yeah. in addition to being the head of PUCO before he had to resign in disgrace, he he also was a head of the utility siting board, and he was killing the wind turbine farm. He put in a, a rule that was going to make it impossible to do, which raised lots of questions. Then when the whole scandal of First Energy came out and Householder and, and all of that, he backed off and, and changed it. And we all thought, hmm, wonder what's going on there. And then later we learned that he got $4 million inexplicably from First Energy. And that's what Kevin Kelly wants to know about. Right. And so this, this Lake Erie Energy Development Corporation formed in 2009 to explore putting wind power turbines out in Lake Erie. And it's been a long, drawn out process. And and the issue here is that that maybe that there there was approval of this, but there were so many conditions, what they call poison pill conditions in the approval of, of erecting these six wind turbines eight miles offshore from Cleveland. I think it was 33 conditions, including that the turbines could not run at night. It effectively killed it. So there's some some concern that there may have been outside influence from First Energy to to keep this project from happening. Maybe four million dollars in outside influence. <laughs> in June, as I recall, the the siting board actually had written its decision. There was a draft of the decision that everybody said was the death of this thing. And then mm-hmm. at the eleventh hour, Rendazzo and company changed what they were doing and, and pulled back. Mm-hmm. Right. We wrote a we wrote about the draft decision. And then what do you know, like the next day when they voted on it, they they changed it. Inexplicably. They, they never you know, said why. Right. And but the one yeah. thing that had happened in between was a sixty one million dollar bribery scheme came to the fore. Mm-hmm. And we were all talking about the weird relationship between the PUCO, Rondazzo and First Energy. Yeah, so. he's critics of his are really quick to point out that he's been a longtime opponent of things like wind energy. Things that would harm First Energy because they want mm-hmm. all the power that they get. Okay, it'd be interesting to see if Kelly moves forward. He keeps talking about stuff he wants to do. We do have a subpoena out there. It'd be nice to see some action. Answers are needed. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Has fraud abated in Ohio's unemployment system or are bogus claims still arriving in big numbers? Jane Cahoon, I don't know which is the bigger topic among our readers, the, the mess that is our vaccine system or 
the mess that is our unemployment system. They're equally big messes. Is the unemployment mess getting better? No. <laughs> I'm afraid it's still really, really bad. You know, we get this weekly report on on new claims and this week's report that we got Thursday shows that scammers are continuing to use stolen personal information to apply for benefits in, in people's names. The system was inundated with claims that they flagged as fraudulent. There were 147,000 roughly new claims for traditional unemployment benefits filed between February 6th and 13th. And so far, more than 33,000 of those have been flagged for potential fraud. And the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services said it's it's pretty reasonable to assume that even more of those claims will eventually be flagged as as bogus. So that's the not sad good. thing is, is because they have to pay much more attention to fraud, they're getting even slower about paying. People yes. People are in about the legitimate claims. So people yeah. who have legitimate claims who need to feed their families and pay their rent you know, their claims are being slowed down. They're the victims of the fraud and the state's got to get on it. It's that both, both with unemployment and the vaccine, they're just moving way too slowly. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Let's do this one quick, but I just can't let this one go. It's too delightful. Did a Cleveland City Council member admit in a public meeting that he regularly has been violating wildlife laws with raccoons for years. Lord Johnson, <laughs> this is just bizarre. I mean, one, that he said it in a public meeting, and two, what he's been doing. It is bizarre, and it got a big laugh at the public meeting. So it was a Wednesday hearing on nuisance animals, and Councilman Joe Jonas abruptly admitted to improperly releasing raccoons he had trapped. Over 15 years, he said he's trapped 40 or 50 raccoons, released them into the wild. That was right after they were just informed that it's illegal to release them. Animal Control Officer John Baird said state law requires the animals to be euthanized by someone with a special license. And they're talking about skunks, possums, groundhogs, raccoons. And I guess the city in previous years has spent about seventy-five dollars to $80,000 every year to hire someone to trap and dispose of these animals. But they haven't had a contract this year uh, or 2020 because of the pandemic, because of health concerns. So the Which population... You know, getting a trap, you're outside. Here's the thing. Right. I, I salute Joe Jones. I mean, I, I haven't done this, but if I had a raccoon problem, the last thing I would do is call in somebody to kill them. It's just not going to happen. So I salute him. He's doing the humane thing. He's taking them away. And I get it. It's wrong. But I can't believe he admitted it in a public <laughs> meeting. I mean, that's the dopey part here. I mean, I salute him for being humane, for making sure that mammals are not getting killed wantonly because they show up in our neighborhoods to eat our garbage. But really dumb. Okay, you wouldn't have guessed that the pandemic caused an influx of these nuisance animals. That was not a A then B thing that I would have seen coming. Yeah, I haven't seen the raccoons. We just have all our squirrels. All right, you're listening to this week in the CLE. Let's end the week on a high note. We've been hearing for years about a huge project to bring homes and grocery store to the depressed Fairfax neighborhood along the Opportunity Corridor. It's been talked about and talked about and talked about. Chris Warnaski, it sounds like we might have movement at last. Yeah. So the Cleveland Planning Commission today will consider the first phase of an 80,000 square foot apartment building at Hudson Avenue and East 105th Street along the Opportunity Corridor. The plans also include a possible uh, grocery store. And we did learn later in the evening after the story initially published that there have been some discussions with Meyer about possibly putting the store there, but no firm commitment from the company. Blaine Griffin, the councilman whose ward includes Fairfax, said that the grocery store would be a significant 
boost for that neighborhood that hasn't had one for a long, long time. So this thing would be sort of neighboring this innovation district that the state is is pumping a lot of money into. So I think the idea is is that you know they're going to create x amount of new jobs in that in that region, and that these would be a place for people to if they wanted to to live there. Well, and there's a bunch of housing stock that's over in that neighborhood that's still in good shape. Mm-hmm. And so if you can build more of a community there, that could have some critical mass. I know they had to overcome a whole sorts of hurdles about stormwater systems and things, but if this thing starts to move, that could be really just a fantastic investment in a corner of the city that that could use it. And it would fulfill some of the promise of Opportunity Carter. So very cool. We'll look for the story on that later today on Cleveland.com, and we'll probably talk about it next week. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right. This week seemed longer than others. I don't know if it's February or if it's the constant (laughs) snow. It's snowing again. It just never stops. It snow, snow, snow. It's you go out every couple days and you clear up the accumulation. I'm the only person I know who's not sick of it is Laura. We we should all take our kids to Cancun for a day. (laughs) (laughs) That was my favorite story of the week. What a clown. I mean, even even for, for Texas, this could be the end of him. I mean, He's such a buffoon. He's trying to be a good dad. Uh, yeah, but he lied, and then he lies. I mean, he got he got com- he got caught running away from his constituents. He got caught lying about it. He just looks like the biggest weasel ever. I can't imagine the constituents in Texas will put up with that. I, I mean, I mean, they'll take a lot of abuse. They have a lot of clowns that come out of Texas, but man. This pushes it. Does anybody disagree with me? <laughs> yeah. Was, wasn't it our oh, Ohio's own John Boehner who once referred to him as a miserable SOB? Or am I thinking of somebody else? <laughs> I just, so unlikable. My, my favorite part about it was that you could clearly see that he was trying to figure a way out around it. And, you know, out, outside of throwing his kids under the bus, which he did immediately, he... He had no, there was no way around it. I mean, it was just, he was caught and he finally admitted it, which is, he like, only admitted it, should, it, shouldn't fe- it felt like such a big relief to have somebody say, I made a mistake. <laughs> like, like that's what was so jarring about it was like, oh, wow. Like Ted Cruz admitted he was wrong. You don't, get really apologize, you don't get credit for saying I made a mistake. <laughs> and you do the he did to avoid it. He only did it because he had to, he looks terrible. And this is, I mean. The people in Texas are going through hell and he skips off to Cancun and, and, you know, the tweets make clear, oh yeah, we're getting away from the cold. It's like, holy moly. That was a, a, a great way to end yesterday to just watch the collapse. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks for everybody who listens to this podcast. 